Welcome to Making a Splash, the arts and culture podcast that celebrates swimming and the sea. I'm your host, Amber Butchart, a dress historian and keen but incredibly unaccomplished sea swimmer. Recently, I've enjoyed becoming an unofficial mermaid spotter. I'm always amazed at how mermaids can appear in the most unexpected places. And this summer, I've come across them everywhere, from Elizabethan halls to Jacobean furniture and medieval wood carvings in churches. The desire for mermaids to exist has been around since antiquity across the world, and the idea of a lost Atlantis or marine paradise has persisted throughout history. Mermaid-like figures exist in centuries-old tales around the globe, from the Arabian Nights to the Ramayana, and as folkloric characters from China to Japan in Slavic mythology and mummy water in parts of Africa and the African diaspora. In more recent years, celluloid mermaids are nearly as old as film itself, from the lost movies of Annette Kellerman to the watery extravaganzas of Esther Williams and Busby Barclay. But what about the queer history of mermaids? Today's guest can tell us all about it. Sasha Coward is a queer historian, tour guide and escape room designer who's been working at museums and heritage sites across the UK for over a decade. He's also a folklorist with a passion for the hidden histories of mermaids and other mythical creatures. At the moment, he's working on LGBTQ tours along the River Thames with the Brunel Museum, as well as developing a series of virtual tours about video games for the Museum of London. But I first met him, fittingly, at the National Maritime Museum. Now, we first met through the National Maritime Museum with our mutual interest in seafaring culture, and you were programming a fantastic series of events for LGBT History Month, one of which involved me talking about the history of the sailor as a queer icon, one of my favourite topics. So thank you very much for getting me involved. Now, what are some of your favourite mermaids that you came across during your time at the National Maritime Museum? So there is a painting in the Queen's House, uh, which is called The Sea Maidens. Uh, and this was painted by Evelyn de Morgan. And it basically depicts a whole host of mermaids all sort of clustered together. Uh, in terms of the story of the original Little Mermaid, they are supposed to be the siblings of Ariel. And the idea being that every day they would come up to the surface just for a little bit to look out at the human world. Now, these kind of group of about four or five women, very sensuously sort of overlaid, intertwined with each other, and they all have the same face. Now, the reason they all have the same face, and we'll probably come back to this a little bit later, um, is because they are depicting a particular model called Jane Hale. And Jane Hale was a favourite model of Evelyn and was also believed to be a, a lover of Evelyn de Morgan. So uh, Evelyn had a husband, they were together, but she also had relationships with women. In fact, some of her work ended up in the Tate's Queer British Artists um, exhibition. So this particular painting is kind of like worshipping this single woman over and over again by depicting her as a mermaid, but multiple times all together in the same painting. 
Now, I love that you call yourself a mermaid hunter. And I recently became obsessed with mermaid spotting after realising just how often you find them in so many unexpected places. Recently, I was doing some work at an Elizabethan uh, country house up in Lancashire, and I was surrounded by mermaids carved into the cornicing. Just amazing how many you find once you're looking for them. Where did your interest in mermaids begin? So in all honesty, my interest in mermaids started as a kid, probably with Disney's The Little Mermaid. That was my introduction to mermaids. Uh, I loved that film and I watched the VHS so much that a certain bit of the tape ran out. It's the bit where Ursula sings Poor Unfortunate Souls. Probably should have guessed certain things about my sexuality at a much (laughs) earlier age. But I (laughs) I was completely enchanted by that. Um, And then I started to get into Greek myths and mythology probably when I was about seven. And you have creatures and beings like sirens, which sort of sometimes resemble mermaids. And then going forward, when I started to work in museums, that was kind of when I picked it up again, almost blew off the dust of this childhood love of mythical creatures and sort of realised, wow, firstly, they're everywhere. Um, and just like you, in the Natural History Mu- uh, in the National Maritime Museum, walking around uh, those spaces, you can guarantee you are going to be surrounded by mermaids. There are so many of them. Uh, but knowing that there was this deeper story and this really fascinating symbolism uh, that mermaids mean so many different things to so many different people and they've been these these symbols throughout history that mean all kinds of positive negative powering disempowering things and so it just became a symbol that I sort of latched onto and when I first said that I was a mermaid hunter. It was a bit of a joke and it very quickly stopped being a joke and became (laughs) deadly serious. (laughs) Now we find mermaid folklore all over the world. What's one of the earliest examples that we come across? It's difficult because I'm sure there have been half fish, half human creatures probably invented and reinvented since the dawn of storytelling. So as soon as human beings could speak, I'm sure we were telling stories like this. But some of the earliest examples I can think of, the two I would pick out, uh, would be the Syrian goddess Atargatis. So Atargatis was a deity and she's depicted often as being a mermaid, although sometimes she has a fish tail and legs. Sometimes she has two fish tails, a bit like, like the Starbucks logo, the sort of split tail motif. Um, and she was a goddess who had an entire priesthood or priestesshood of, of basically women who would transition. So they would be assigned male at birth. But they would then self-castrate and incredibly pain. I know if you can think back to ancient Syria, this is going to be incredible, painful uh, experience with basically showing their devotion to the goddess and then would live the rest of their lives as women. They were described as being beautiful. Uh, you know, they would wear, have long hair, long dresses. Everything about them was, was feminine and they were referred to as priestesses. So there's this really interesting ancient story there. And then you also have kind of oral histories, um, for example, in Aboriginal cultures in Australia. Australia, uh, a particular collection of mermaids, for example, the York York. Um, so the York York basically describes a half human, half fish like creature in a kind of ancient Australian culture, although these are still depicted to today. So you can actually find some beautiful sand paintings uh, of these beings, but they're not beautiful like Ariel. They're quite monstrous and they're dangerous. And when you hear their, their song, it's not beautiful. 
the reason they're called York York is they sound a bit like a frog. You know, it's kind of croaking sound, beckoning you towards the water's edge. But all of these stories, you know, predate any of the classical motifs that we think or any of the fairy tales we're used to by, you know, hundreds, maybe thousands of years. Why do you think that mermaids continue to hold such appeal in popular culture? I think there are so many reasons why we're, we're drawn to them. Partly there is just the fascination with the sea. Uh, you know, you look at the sea, it is, for many respects, the sea for a lot of human history was like out of space. So nowadays we talk about like, are there aliens living on distant worlds? Well, the same conversations were happening in the 1500s, the 1400s, but they were looking out at sea and saying, what is beyond that horizon? What is down in those depths? And so they, they basically are a depiction of the mysterious unknown. Another thing about the mermaid is you have this often combination. Now, obviously, not all mermaids are feminine in appearance. You get all kinds and types. But the traditional Western depiction of a mermaid is of a beautiful woman with a fish tail. And this contrast of the beautiful and the cold in human fish, I think is strangely like horrifying and exciting and beautiful and mysterious. So there's this kind of interesting interplay in mermaids of them being, you know, the mysterious unknown, the wonderful, marvelous feminine, but also the monstrous feminine, uh, scary and also somehow enticing. All of these contrasting kind of things that have fascinated us since since we first looked out at the sea, I think is why they still hold a real interest to today. What I love about your research is that you're uncovering so much queer history that's hidden in plain sight through mermaids. And there's one particular example that I've heard you speak about before in Trafalgar Square. Can you tell me a bit about that? Yeah, sure. So if you go to Trafalgar Square in London and you walk around at Nelson's Column, you'll also come across a whole bunch of uh, statues and fountains. And there's these two fountains. One of them depicts a bunch of mermaids and one of them in particular has this merman. So this merman, I've always seen and walked by. I've always liked spotting a mermaid or a merman, but I'd never thought too much into it. Uh, but after giving a talk at the British Museum, a woman came up to, up to me and asked me whether I had spotted the merman in Trafalgar Square. I said yes. And she mentioned that this particular merman was modelled on her uncle and that her uncle had been a bodybuilder in the late 1800s, early 1900s, um, and that he went by the name Tony Aserati, was Italian um, from birth, and that he um, basically was a, a bodybuilder, a strong man, but also a model for a number of artists. And um, that the, recently the, the family had gone through some of his records and he was believed to be uh, a gay or bisexual man. Um, now, he was married to a woman, but from the family, I'm told that this was a marriage of convenience in some senses. And later looking into the story, I found that this particular man also modelled for the artist Duncan Grant. So you start to get you know, Duncan Grant being an artist who was famously queer um, and was you know, painting a lot of the male form. In fact, had his own sort of secret collection of erotic male nudes that he gave to a friend, basically saying, please don't uh, show these until long after I'm dead. Um, and so, yeah, Tony was part of this world. So you have this merman right back centre of Trafalgar Square in like the tourist centre of London. 
and he is modelled on this queer bodybuilder, which is part of this other narrative of a secret queer London that used to exist. But again, using this form of the mermaid, um, and it is—it's—it's—it used to just be a coincidence. I thought maybe this is just one of those things that if you look for it, suddenly you see it. But it's come to the point where there is something about that symbol, the mermaid, and my community, the LGBTQ plus community, where we just seem to meet each other throughout history over and over and over again. That there is something about this, these two symbols, these two things that, that mesh really easily. We also see this. Uh, this kind of hidden in plain sight history in some of the iterations of The Little Mermaid, don't we? Yeah, so I mean, the, the story that I, I'd say we all know, we don't all know, but a lot of us know is is the Disney film. That's at least my generation, us millennials. Uh, that's what we were raised with. And of course, Disney is about to release a new iteration of that. Now, the Disney film is itself queer, and we'll come to that in a second, but it is based on the original story by Hans Christian Andersen. Um, and the fascinating thing about the original story is partly that I, I don't think many people have read it because it is wonderfully dark and Victorian and twisted. Um, you know, she doesn't lose her voice. She has her tongue cut out by a rusty pair of scissors. Um, when she goes to walk on land, she has cursed legs. So it, it literally says in the story, every step she takes is like treading on broken glass. Like it is, it's a cursed life. And in the end, spoilers, uh, she does not get the prince. She gets turned into sea foam. And because mermaids aren't human, they don't have a soul. So it's uncertain whether she gets to go to heaven. There's a whole passage saying maybe over thousands of years she'll be allowed into heaven. But at the moment, she's just sea foam. So a deeply tragic story. So who wrote this twisted, tragic story? Well, it was Hans Christian Andersen, purveyor of basically most of our youth, most of the fairy tales we know. But he wrote this particular story just after a bit of a tumultuous time in his life, when more or less he'd been writing to a man called Edvard Cullen, writing love letters, these adorational letters, um, and basically ended up being rejected because Edvard uh, got married and more or less said, hey, uh, Hans, it's love you're writing me these letters but I, I can't feel the depth of emotion that you seem to feel towards me which um, Hans experiences deep rejection as basically being dumped and so he then went off and wrote The Little Mermaid he went off into isolation to a small island and wrote The Little Mermaid so you can kind of see when you see it through that lens that The Little Mermaid is actually a story of queer love being rejected and it is him dealing with this through this half-formed creature through this creature that can't be of, you know, the real world, of the normal human world, and has to go through this painful experience to find a prince, which just so happens to be a nickname that he had for Edvard, and then doesn't get the prince, is rejected again. Um, and so you, you have this really powerful analogue. Now, um, Hans was a, you know, a, I'd say a biromantic man. He's a very complex character. But his diaries, and thank God for people who write diaries, because I can actually say, well, these are his words, show that he fell deeply romantically in love with men and with women. Whether or not he ever actually had relationships um, in terms of in-person or sexual romantic relationships remains to be seen but he definitely felt this depth of emotion and so the little mermaid in many ways i believe is a product of this rejection and of a queer love story without a happy ending so the reason we have ariel is because of this 
And then if I were to go on to Disney, I would say that this this story continues because um, the film was partially made by a man called Howard Ashman. And Howard uh, worked for the Disney company, also worked on musicals and musical theatre. But Howard was a gay man. And actually, very tragically, just after working on The Little Mermaid, he passed away. He died of HIV. And he found out that he had AIDS whilst working on The Little Mermaid. There are many kind of allusions to the impact he had on the story, the way Disney made that film. Uh, Originally Ursula, so the sea witch, the octopus sea witch, uh, she was originally going to be this spindly, gnarled, you know, you classic evil witch hag. But instead, Howard asked that they base it on the drag queen, the drag queen Divine, who was very big at that period. And so rather than being this skinny thing, she became this big, bodacious, powerful... uh, If you see the way she moves, the way she uses the eels as boas, it's a drag performance. What you are seeing is a drag show in a Disney film. And so there's all of this stuff that goes into it, which does always make me think that when people talk about The Little Mermaid, Disney's The Little Mermaid, there's often a sense where you can push your glasses up and go, well, actually, in the original, she doesn't get the print, so it's just been Disney-fied. I've sort of changed my tune on this. I'm like, reflecting on all of these queer people contributing to this myth, let's give The Mermaid a happy ending for a change. Let's give her her prints. I'm fine with that. And so this is just two of the most famous depictions of mermaids, and both of them would not exist as they are if it wasn't for the LGBTQ plus community. You just would not have these things. Just remarkable. And that is something that deserves to be shouted from the rooftops, I think. More people need to know that. It's so great that you're doing this work, getting that knowledge out there. And do we see any more examples of this in art as well? So yeah, there's a lot of depiction of mermaids uh, in queer art forms, whether that is theatre or literature or paintings. Uh, One of the classic ones I'll briefly mention is that Oscar Wilde himself actually rewrote The Little Mermaid. He did his own version uh, called The Fisherman uh, and His Soul. Um, So you can actually see a queer person's interpretation of a queer person's interpretation of a mermaid. In terms of actual like visual arts, I would like to shout out, and this is maybe a little bit narcissistic, but I got to work on a project at the National Maritime Museum. So we worked over three years with a group called Mermaids UK, and we'll come to them a little bit more later, because obviously that name is tantalising. But they are a transgender youth group, one of the biggest ones that operates in the UK. And we worked with a number of their young people, so these were trans, intersex, non-binary, gender-fluid teenagers, to come and look at the collection and produce an artwork, a permanent artwork. And this was done with the artist Eve Shepherd. The artwork that was created was a bronze bust. So quite a traditional art form, the idea being that this would exist within the museum alongside all of the other bronze busts, which uh, I bet you're stunned to hear are very, very largely white middle-aged men. I think we have one bust of Queen Victoria and that's about it. And so this they created their their own story, their own depiction of who they were as being this 
non-gendered, non-binary sea entity. It's called Person of the Sea, using all of these different strands of mythology, everything from cell keys to some of the paintings in the collection to the story of Hans Christian Andersen and this beautiful piece that is now there. Um, and what's really great as well is when you walk up to it, you can press a button and it speaks. We have a, a pre-recorded voice, which one of the young people in the group actually told the story of this being. So the power of this is there's now this bronze bust, which is beautiful and, and really lovely to look at, but it now exists permanently within the museum collection, both connecting the mythos of mermaids to contemporary trans youth living today in the UK and that for me is something really exciting. Why do you think mermaids are such a powerful symbol for the queer community? So mermaids are a symbol for many different communities. You know, there are many ways you can see a mermaid. I've had fascinating conversations with feminists, with people of colour, with, you know, wheelchair users, people who are looking at mermaids and they see something in it that belongs to them. For the queer community, there are many things that that kind of jibe with us. Um, But one of them is the fact that a mermaid is a creature of two worlds. Just in its form, it is part fish and it is part human. The classic stories of mermaids are of a being that often wants to escape the world they're in and wants to be part of the human world, but is held back by something that you know they can't they they can't help. They won't ask to be born with a fish tail. That's just the way they are. So there's something about that narrative which I think we found we find really empowering as queer people who often feel like we are sidelined in society or that. That, you know, we have to sort of put on a bit of a show and a bit of a performance to fit in. We have to try really hard uh, to fit in. And then, of course, in the classic myth, there is the symbolism of losing your voice, right? The only way that you can be part of the human world is to give up your voice. And I think a lot of queer people or people from any minority will resonate with that. The idea that if I need to fit in, I also need to shut up. So I think as as well as that, there is also the fact that mermaids are monsters, that you see them in almanacs, you see them in beasteries, but mermaids are beautiful monsters, right? So there is the sense that, that queer people in particular, we have felt demonised quite literally for a long time. Uh, going back through history, we are often seen as subhuman or non-human or monstrous in some sense. So taking a symbol that is a monster but is appealing and beautiful and popular with children is a way of reclaiming that symbol and saying, okay, we, we will be monsters then, fine, but we're going to be beautiful, glamorous, singing, operatic monsters whilst we're at it. So I would say those are probably the two most important things for me. It is the hybrid nature of a mermaid. The fact that it is part one thing and part another, part human, part something else. And the empowering nature that it is strange and weird and, and a bit odd, but it's also beautiful and celebrated and visible in artworks. You know, we don't tend to affiliate, affiliate ourselves with hideous monsters. We don't want to be seen as ogres, but to be seen as a mermaid is something different. Now, you're also heavily involved with Museum Pride, an event that takes place each year. Can you tell me about that? 
Yeah, so this started uh, way back when, so we're talking about four or five years ago, when I was still working at the Maritime Museum, and I had a conversation in a pub in Greenwich, uh, when we do a little shout out to Sarah Wajid, a good friend of mine who was also my boss at the museum, and we were chatting about LGBTQ plus representation in museums, and I just said, you know, why don't we march at Pride? And it kind of started as a joke, like, get all the curators out, and we'll have to carry the cab and could we do a handling collection down there in Trafalgar Square? Or, and then it very, again, stopped being a joke, just like the mermaid hunter thing. You start chuckling and then actually you're like, what? But why don't we? And we sort of realised that it was one of the big issues we had in museums is not lack of representation in the staff. There are loads and loads of queer people working in museums. It's more of lack of representation in how people see museums. So we were there, we just weren't visible. And so going on the London Pride Parade would be an opportunity for thousands and thousands of people to see the fact that the museums they go to are looked after, worked on, researched and cared for by queer people, that we are there and we have stories to tell. And also for LGBTQ plus people at the parade, at the event, to know that they can go to a museum and perhaps feel a bit more safe and a bit more embodied and that there is work happening behind the scenes. We are dragging these stories out into the light. Um, so we, we started the very first Museum Pride London group, which was basically people from museums across London and then later across the UK, people travelled down to London to march. And about, you know, 100 or so of us gathered in the very first year to march under, you know, great big banners, basically saying, you know, museums are queer, all kinds of puns, the Victorian Albert Museum, the Natural History Museum, all with placards with images from their collection. And it's now become this yearly experience of a huge public engagement moment, but also a joyful celebration for us all to come together. Um, you know, a lot of us are all working in our little museums or our big museums behind the scenes, you know, behind it, it working on collections, looking at cabinets in the dark, bringing us all together in one collective that isn't just about what any one museum or any one subject and just celebrating the fact that history is and always will be queer uh, feels incredibly powerful and it's been an, an emotional and fun experience i mean one of the things that's really funny is when you're marching through pride you expect people to like shout and chant certain things you know we're here we're queer or, but then when people are suddenly chanting about libraries galleries and archives i mean there's <laughs> something really nerdily hysterical about that people like waving banners with medieval intertextual records like i love the nerdiness of that it's, I it's love great that. i love it so much so fantastic now you also you mentioned the work uh, that you've done previously with the charity mermaids can you tell me a bit more about that and of course the name as well it's been one of the proudest moments of my career. It's like I, I've loved working with Mermaids UK. So I am a cisgender gay man. And for a lot of my life, I probably was pretty ignorant about the trans and non-binary community. 
by working more with the LGBTQ plus community, I, I obviously met a lot more people with different identities to my own. And I started to realise that there are many fights happening today for queer people. And one of the big ones is for representation of trans and non-binary people. And so when I was working at the Maritime Museum, um, we were thinking about doing this, commissioning this new bust. We were looking at different communities to work with. And we actually worked with threes. So we worked with a group of refugees. We worked with a group of girl guides in the local community. And then the third community, I, I kind of looked and thought, well, trans representation. We have no trans representation in uh, the museum. And so it was an incredible learning opportunity for me. And I'm, I'm so thankful to Mermaids from UK for being so patient and kind, giving basically three years for me to get to know them, to, to earn their trust and work with their young people. But they are an organisation which looks after specifically uh, trans kids, trans teenagers and families with uh, trans or non-binary individuals living as part of them. And I went away to one of their retreats, um, which obviously have to be kept very hush-hush. I wasn't told the location until the day before because this is a community that is under siege. All you've got to do is read the tabloid press to see that there is a lot of hate aimed at these kids, right? It's really, really horrendous. And so getting to work with them was so humanising because they're just families and they're just teenagers being teenagers. You know, they, they share this common experience um, and there's a lot of stuff that they do uh, around gender, around confirming and understanding their own gender identities. But generally, they've got all the same interests, all the same sass that you would expect from any group of teenagers. Now, one of the big draws to me was, of course, the name Mermaids UK. Like, I was like, why, why are they called this? I'm looking into queer representation in mermaids. And the biggest trans, like, youth network is called Mermaids UK. What is that connection? And I got to talk to a few parents about it. And what they told me was that the mermaid for young queer people, but particularly trans and non-gender conforming young people, is a really like popular symbol. A lot of these kids love the Little Mermaid to a, you know, a degree more than other kids. They love the toys, they love the symbols, they draw them. You know, mermaids are this the symbol they love. And partly because there is this additional thing with mermaids, wherein, for example, Ariel in The Little Mermaid is a beautiful, you know, she, she uses she, her pronouns, but her genitalia is completely irrelevant. Like, she has a fishtail. So the fact that she is a woman has nothing to do with what's going on beneath her waist. As well as this, Ariel wants to change her body so that she can live the life that she wants to live. And she gets her wish. It's bloody hard work and it causes a lot of upset with her family. But in the end, she gets legs and she gets to go on land. And she gets, in the Disney film at least, a happy ever after. So this narrative for a lot of young trans people is really appealing for obvious reasons. This creature who can change her body, who, you know, is the gender that she says she is without anyone having to take her to a GP for tests. But she's also beautiful and celebrated. So all of these things mean that the mermaid for a lot of kids, teenagers, is a symbol that kind of easily encapsulates a lot of stuff that's actually very difficult to talk about in something that's quite simple. Anyway, that is my understanding through the conversations that I've had, both with parents and with trans people. I think, you know, 
to, to really get the understanding, you would need to talk directly to the trans community. Now, I can tell from the internet and social media that you are pretty keen on working out. <laughs> this is something you do talk about quite regularly. So I was wondering if swimming is part of your routine. I, I love the sort of unintentional shade in that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I know, I gab on and I overshare. Um, but the yeah, I, I, I enjoy working out. It's something that I've discovered quite late in my life. I think like a lot of queer people, uh, PE and sports and physical activity, physical activity was something I associated with terrible fear all the way through my teenage years and well into my 20s. So doing anything physical for a long time um, I just associated with humiliation and horror and so it's only recently I feel like I sort of reclaimed that um, swimming is something I have always enjoyed though uh, I was really lucky uh, as a kid we used to go on holidays to Greece all the time and so I was taught to swim relatively early and uh, you know my nickname as a kid was water baby because I would just always be in the sea and in fun fact I was in the sea yesterday anytime I go to the coast anytime the season shot unless it is like stormy and actually frozen I will almost certainly throw myself in I do always feel very drawn to swimming I love the sensation I would say I don't do it nearly enough partly because well I mean lockdown doesn't help but the process of going to a swimming pool as I live in London is not quite the romantic activity that I like when I'm in Stroud or Gloucestershire going down to like the river and like stepping into like the, the lake that's wonderful because you feel a bit like a like Artemis or something but like going to a chlorinated swimming pool whilst I enjoy it when I'm in there there's the whole process and the fear of verrucas and the which isn't quite as fun so I would say swimming is part of my life. It's something that I have always adored doing. But as in terms of my daily fitness or weekly fitness routine, it's definitely lacking at the moment. I would like to do a lot more of it. Where were you in the sea yesterday? Uh, so we went down to Dorset, just as you do. And it, was, it started off a little bit cloudy and overcast, but we went to a sort of outdoor barbecue gathering uh, with a group called Outdoor Lads, the wonderfully named uh, Gay Hiking and Outdoor Society. Uh, yeah, but it was, it was really, really fun. It was just kind of, because it was all outdoors, it was nice and COVID safe. And um, me and my husband thought it would just be a really nice thing to do just to, to get out of London uh, midweek. We both had a day off. And of course, yeah, it was stony, rocky beach, covered in seaweed, not beautiful, not Disney worthy at all, but I was in there as soon as possible. I can't not throw myself in the sea. It's become a bit of a joke with some of my friends. I went uh, to San Francisco a few years ago and I mean, it was like raining and gray and freezing. And of course, Sasha is in the sea because he has to be. So yeah, it was, it was lovely. Where's your favourite place that you've ever swum? Probably not that stretch of Dorset. <laughs> not that particular. I'm sure there's, there are some beautiful beaches around Dorset. Not not quite where we went. So I've I've you know I'm trying to think of the most beautiful places that I have ever swum. I would say you know swimming in the Philippines was something else. So I went to Boracay again with my husband. This was about ten years ago, eight years ago, um, and it is like a postcard like it's like if you picture or google tropical beach it was that the sand was white you know and so soft and so smooth and you know the the smells you could smell tropical fruit coming from inland so that was beautiful 
But I would say that my favorite place to swim of all time, and again, it links back to my childhood, is on the island of Paros in Greece. So it's one of the Kliklades, a circle of islands. Um, and it is a beautiful island, but I think for some people it, it might not be quite the epic, remarkable beach experience. But for me, it ties back to my childhood of going down to Logora Beach, which is a bit pebbly and it has this like drop off. So you go in, it's really shallow and then it suddenly drops off really, really deep. But it's just the sound of Greek families chattering away. It is the kind of prospect of getting an ice cream a bit later, thinking about maybe having a souvlaki. The sun, the fact that it's so hot that you almost feel that you can hear the sun. It's just the cicadas in the background, that kind of endless hissing insectile buzz, but somehow feels like heat. And then you've got the smell, the citrusy oregano smell. That for me is like bliss, just floating in the water there, knowing I've got absolutely nothing that I need to do that day, nothing I need to achieve, no work to do. That's my happy place right there. God, that sounds so dreamy. It is a grey overcast day in July in Margate here. And so what you have just described (laughs) sounds absolutely delicious. So good. May we all find whatever, wherever that is, where, you know, whether it's at home or abroad in the next year or so, I hope we all have the opportunity to find that happy place again, because good Lord, I need it. Who would be your ideal swimming companion, real or imaginary, dead or alive? So this is really, this is going to be a bit of a mad one, uh, but we are going to go back to mermaids because obviously we are. My ideal swimming companion, I would love to go for a swim with Ursula from The Little Mermaid. So Ursula, yeah, I mean, why the hell not, right? Um, So Ursula, like I have this reading of her that I think she's played a bit dirty. So she is the sea witch in Disney's Little Mermaid. She is depicted as a Sicilian sea witch, which basically means she is half octopus and half human. And she deals in bargains and in promises. So you go up and you can sign up for something. You get what you ask for, but you have to pay a price. Now, everyone, she's the bad guy. She is the evil sea witch. Um, But I also kind of think she also lays down the terms really fairly. Like, this is what you get and this is what you pay. And that's what Ariel agrees with. She signs her name. And whilst there's a bit of a kind of dark side of capitalism in there, there is also a sense that, you know, she she is doing stuff for people that people could otherwise not achieve. And Ariel would never have got on land without the help of Ursula, even if she does end up being a megalomaniac. So going for a swim with us, I'd love to have a chat with her. Yeah, I, I think she's got a bit of a rum deal. I know that in the end she does become this evil megalomaniac, but I think she's just a shrewd businesswoman. I think there's a very different way of reading her. And she's also this queer icon based on the drag queen. And I'd love to have a chat with her. I would like to hear a bit more about her backstory. Like, where did she come from? How did she end up becoming a sea witch? Are there any other half octopuses out there? Is she all on her own? How does she feel about that, surrounded by all these ridiculously live Instagram-worthy mermaids. And I think we would just have a real laugh. We'd probably go for a bit of a dip, go for a bit of a dive, you know, have a real nice bitch about everyone else, a real kind of... And then maybe maybe go and get a drink afterwards, go and watch the sunset, have something nice and strong. I'm picturing, picturing this in Greece, so we'd have a, a shot of ouzo each, and then just like, yeah, just have a really good night mercilessly ripping apart heterosexual and heteronormative culture. That's my dream. 
uh, destroying the patriarchy and heterosexuality with Ursula the Sea Witch on the Greek beach. That is so fantastic. Can you imagine going swimming with Ursula, with Divine and with John Waters, the, the Holy Trinity? That would just be incredible. Uh, my only fear is I'd be like the fourth wheel. When I, I, like, I could imagine them all getting on so well that I would end up just sort of be stood there on the outside, just like a bit of a fanboy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, amazing. If you could swim anywhere in the world that you haven't yet swum, where would it be? So a place I would love to swim, but also fears me with like deep, deep fear at the same time is like in some of the kind of South American kind of, I think probably Brazil and also actually Mexico as well. There are these incredible cave systems that go underwater and it's generally only for people who are very experienced scuba deep sea divers that are able to do this. But going swimming through these alien worlds, these dark worlds with torches where the creatures down there have lived entirely in the dark and have evolved to bizarre body plans. So whilst that would be a terrifying experience in many ways, and probably a lot of you are thinking, why on earth would you do that? Um, I am drawn to the bizarre and the mysterious. And I think part of me would feel a bit like Indiana Jones just going and swimming in these places where humans haven't been for hundreds of years or thousands of years. I think that would be really exciting. So if I had the confidence and the safety in my own swimming ability, which I don't at the moment, I would love to go to, to, to go to a, a mysterious underwater cove or cave. I think that would be really cool. Thank you so much for listening and thanks to Sasha for being such an excellent guest. If you've enjoyed this, please do rate and subscribe so you never miss an episode. And you can find out more about future guests at my Instagram page at Amber Butchart. See you next time on Making a Splash.